0: Hello, this is Close Talking co-host Jack Rossiter-Mundley. Welcome to this not entirely new episode of Close Talking. For our second anniversary, which we just celebrated a little bit earlier this month, we thought we would bring you a rebroadcast of one of our favorite episodes about Ursatz Ignatz by Monica Yoon. My co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton, picked this poem initially, and we had a lot of fun talking about it. As I mentioned, we just celebrated two years of doing this podcast, and Connor and I have had a blast. We've loved hearing from listeners about all these poems. If you have thoughts on any of them, you can always reach out to us. The show is at Close Talking on Twitter. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn on Twitter, and Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. That's a great way to get in touch with us. We also have a Facebook, facebook.com slash close talking will take you to our page, and we have a Gmail account. Which is close talking poetry at gmail.com. That's another place to reach out to us for if you have any longer thoughts on any of the episodes. Um, yeah, we've just had a great time doing this podcast. Uh, it's fun for both of us to talk to each other about these poems, and we're glad that there are people out there who are enjoying it. Uh, one of the fun things that has come out of this is that. Connor is going to be representing the podcast on a panel at the upcoming Association of Writers and Writing Programs conference in early 2019. We're going to be on a panel called Literary Podcasting, The Good, The Bad, and The Books, which is going to feature a bunch of other really cool literary podcasts, such as The Racist Sandwich, Fiction, Nonfiction, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, and Between the Covers. I encourage you to check out all of those podcasts and Connor and I are both gonna be at AWP, so if you get a chance, connect with us. Anyway, that's all I have to say as a way of introduction. Here is our episode on Monica Yoon's Ursatz Ignatz. Hope you enjoy it.
1: Welcome to another episode of Close Talking. I'm one of your co-hosts, Connor McImara Stratton.
0: And I'm your co-host from the East Coast, Jack Rosseter Munley!
1: got a little rhyme there that's what we like to hear on close talking all about poetry all about rhyming unless we're talking about metaphors or similes or assonance or assonance or really just the infinite variety of things a poem can do and shout out cleopatra infinite variety There you go. Episode number 16, Anthony and
0: Cleopatra with special guest Molly Booth. It's pretty good stuff.
1: I had to listen to it in three sessions because it is massive.
0: Massively Uh, awesome.
1: Massively awesome. But we've got an excellent poem today. Um, This poem is by the, the inimitable Monica Yoon, who is both a poet and, did you know this, Jack, a lawyer? I did know
0: that because she has a lot of really smart and interesting things to say about how her time as a lawyer influences her poetry, particularly in how she thinks about usage of time and the construction of poems.
1: Jack, as you probably know, is a paralegal and I've heard applying to law school this fall and or other grad schools. Probably
0: law school, but the, uh, the pressure of making one single choice is so great that I uh, gotta be a little wishy-washy at this stage because otherwise i'm just terrified by the gaping void of the future and that's not a good place to be it's pretty tough i've been
1: there several times i'm frequently yeah, yeah. there and somehow we're still managing to make time for poems it's it's good it's tough you gotta make good. time for poems otherwise what's the point there is no point which is what brings us this great poem it's called ersatz ignatz a wonderful title Inevitable, inevitable incomprehensible Perhaps. It comes from Monica Yoon's second book of poems, which is sort of a project theme book, uh, all around the character Ignatz, who was one of the, he was the angry, mouse in the Crazy Cat comic series.
0: It ran Uh, in William Randolph Hearst's papers from 1913 to 1944 and yes Ignatz was the mouse who threw bricks at Crazy Cat which Crazy Cat interpreted as gestures of love.
1: Yeah and so the comic strip is this very strange surreal but poignant uh, reflection on unrequited love that crazy cat has for Ignatz who never pays it back. And it also takes place in a rather surreal version of the Southwest. So there's lots of desert images, which, which comes into this. It's
0: a, it is a twisted version of a real place, Coconino County, Arizona, which is mm-hmm. sort of the very middle top of Arizona.
1: And just one other bit of info before the poem. The title, ersatz, Ignatz, ersatz, is a word that you'll find on the SAT and the GRE, probably. You'll
0: also find it in the next series of a series of unfortunate events on Netflix, because they're going to adapt the ersatz elevator.
1: Oh, my God. (laughs) But the word means a cheap or an imitation of a thing that's usually uh, less good than the true thing itself. And without further ado, ersatz ignatz. The clockwork saguaros sprout extra faces like planaria stroked by a razor. Chug, say the sparrows, emitting fluffs of steam. Chug, chug, say the piston-powered ground squirrels. The tumbleweeds circle on retrofitted tracks, but the blue pasteboard welkin is much dented by little winds. The yucca's pulse softly under the grow light sconces. Here is the door he will paint on the rock. Here is the glass floor of the cliff. He'll enter from the west, backlit in orange icing glass, pyrite pendants glinting from the fringes of his voice.
0: There is so much going on in this poem.
1: I don't know if this is uh, my fellow listener's first impression, but when I read that poem the first time, I was just like, Those words are wild and I am seeing nothing.
0: That was not my first reaction. My first reaction was about a lot of work that goes on in the American West, bringing together the ideas of the pastoral scenery and industrial images. Uh, One of the big themes in the Western is the intrusion of the railroad into a space. And so you have a lot of films and tv shows particularly films on screen depictions of the west that deal with this issue so you have shows like hell on wheels that literally follow the town that grows around wherever the railroad happens to be as it moves across the country the classic example is once upon a time in the west the spaghetti western which starts with a train coming into a previously completely still train station and all of this for me at least is somewhat contextualized by the really fascinating book about 19th century American literature, The Machine in the Garden by Leo Marx, which is all about how in 19th century literature, there's a tension between pastoral images and the intrusion of industry and technology. He sort of looks at Melville and Twain and all these guys and says that what serious literature of that period was doing is taking these two big ideas that were sort of in conflict in America at the time, this tension between the growth of cities and the growth of industry and this essential Americanness rooted in sort of a limitless landscape. One of the classic examples he uses is Huck Finn and Jim on the raft, which then gets destroyed by a steamboat. And he says that the raft is their garden, the steamboat is the machine. And reading through this poem, thinking about all of that sort of mixed together, obviously, the idea of ersatz ignatz is like this pale imitation of a real Ignatz. And this is sort of a mechanical version of the Southwest scenery. You get all of these call outs to specific, you know, saguaro, yucca, the different animals that are there, but there's no sun, it's grow lights, they're all mechanical. Having those two ideas together uh, was sort of where I first went upon reading
1: it. Holy spaghetti noodle, doodle! That is a heck of a first reading. I'm a little, I moved a little slower. I got to the same place that you did by the end, but without all of the incredible historical American West context. And I'm going to take a long roundabout way and eventually get to where you got. I see this poem. I'm like thinking about the first line. I'm like, the clockwork saguaros sprout extra faces like planaria stroked by a razor. Chug. That's the first stanza. A razor period chug is the second line. Holy smacks! I mean, the strangeness of the diction. Probably more people than me know what a saguaro is. I didn't at first glance. I looked it up. I did my research.
0: Classic uh, desert cactus with the arms that stick up. <laughs> yep, the arms, the arms cactus. When someone says cactus,
1: it is what you think of. Exactly. But then it's like, okay, clockwork. I don't know what, why that is paired with saguaros initially. Then sprouting extra faces. Okay, that's very confusing. I'm not picturing a cactus with faces. How is that happening? And then it's like planaria. Again, I'm reaching a word that I don't know. I look it up. Okay, it's a flatworm. They're known for their great ability to regenerate. So there's, I'm seeing, flatworms being chopped off their heads, and then they grow them back. And then I'm imagining that onto a cactus. And I'm like, okay, I still haven't explained the clockwork. I believe
0: Um, uh, saguaros will grow their arms back should they lose them.
1: Boom. That's another thing. All right. This is great. Quote
0: me 100% on that, but I'm almost positive.
1: (laughs) And then we get a very strange verb-ish word, stroked by a razor. So then the razor, presumably, is what's cutting off the arm of the cactus, but it's doing so in a stroking, almost like intimate kind of way. Anyway, and then as, as we go on, there's just so many absurd things that are happening. Chug, say the sparrows emitting fluffs of steam. Okay, I've never heard a sparrow say chug. I've never even seen a fluff of steam. I mean, steam's got clouds, but it's not particularly fluffy. Chug chug, say the piston-powered ground squirrels. Everything's chugging. Da, da da da. At some point, longer than it took me, than it took Jack. I'm like, all right, what's there's a consistency of imagery, even if I don't understand. And then I go back to ersatz, and yeah, we get the imitation. And so then we see this really consistent use of modifying imagery where everything is like the Southwest, but a machine or some kind of thing. The, the saguaro is a clockwork thing. The sparrows are mechanical that chug like a train that have steam. The squirrels are powered by pistons like trains. The tumbleweeds are on retrofitted tracks. So they're like moving around according to, you know, a mechanical thing. And then the blue pasteboard welkin and Again, there's another strange element of the diction which we can talk later about is it's not just the mechanical thing, but there's this old, almost poetry, but old, like old, old English language like welkin or sconces. And welkin refers to like the heavenly sky or the firmament or some sort of thing. So then we have the sky itself as a blue pasteboard, which is Pretty wild, and it's dented, so our sky is literally dented. Then grow light is a thing that is a artificial light used to grow plants. So we have pulsing yucas next to their artificial little suns, and you know you have pyrite pendants, pyrite being fake gold,
0: fools gold even.
1: Fools gold, yeah, classic ersatz, uh material. And anyway, I I picked this poem in part because. Sometimes I think one of the great delights of some poems is the surprising combination and collection and adjacencies of language that, that would normally be put together. So these images of the, the Southwest and and these images of intimacy, of stroking, welkins, of pulsing, of sconces, and then the, the mechanical industrial age uh, imagery are not Things that you commonly associate. Um, But through the use of Monica Yoon's conceit, where we have the Ignatz character and the love, and then the nice little rhyme, Ursatz, Ignatz, she allows, she justifies the uh, juxtaposition of these words. But when you first read it and you don't have all that context, I think it's either a great delight or it's supremely alienating. And so I wanted to take this one slowly on the podcast because I think that oftentimes there is a, an undercurrent rigor that justifies the use of, of language, even though at first read it may seem particularly strange.
0: Yeah, I think the poem sort of lives and dies either on your pre-existing knowledge of the comics and the context of it being in a book about this, where there is that sort of frame for it or your pre-existing knowledge of the American West or like American literary tradition around using the West, or your ability to revel in language. <laughs> I love that you pull out the way that she's using language because another, I, the place that I go with this sort of language is uh, Cormac McCarthy, who also writes about the West and the type of language that he often uses. You said the word firmament, and one of my favorite quotes from Cormac McCarthy that I can never remember all of, but it's from All the Pretty Horses, the first book in his Border Trilogy, is this great image of these riders going out, and he talks about how they now ride sort of in the firmament, and that's the kind of language he uses. He refers to torsional trout and all this kind of stuff. And the language is very consciously constructed in this way. It does feel like that language is calling back to an early industrial age. And the way that she interjects the constructedness of the scene she's talking about, to me, sounds a lot like or feels a lot like the cartoonist sitting down to draw whatever this scene is. So you have the pasteboard welkin. He's just drawn in the sky. You have the grow light sconces. You know, he's drawing in fake lighting for the room and he'll enter from the West backlit in orange and icing glass pyrite pendants glinting from the fringes of his voice. I personally read that as the comic artist's voice in putting this together. And one of the sort of neat things about the Crazy Cat comics and why they were treated more seriously than comics that had come before is because every panel could have a different background during the same little narrative story. He would often draw in theater lights or curtains and all this other kind of stuff that had never really been done before. He was playing with the medium, calling out the sort of constructedness of his vision and putting his voice as a creator
1: into the work. That makes me have one idea and one question. And probably lots of other little things that never will reach the surface. The first idea is that, so taking your idea that the he, so that at the end of the poem that there's a turn after the line the yuccas pull softly under the grill light sconces. And then here is the door he will paint on the rock. Here is the glass floor of the cliff. He'll enter from the west backlit in orange and glass pirate pendants glinting from the fringes of his voice. So if we take that turn and that he to be the comic artist, as I think your reading allows for.
0: That's one thing I think is going on there. I think it's also Ignatz himself entering and lying because he does that a lot. One of the conceits of the comic is that he can tell Crazy Cat, like, hey, meet me literally anywhere at any time. And Crazy Cat's like, oh yeah, sure. And then he throws a brick at him.
1: (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, that gets to my question. I had sort of read it as Ignatz, but I think that you're right that he is sort of both Ignatz and the author himself. As the author, that's interesting to bring up the constructedness, because then that that makes but that makes me conflate the crazy cats unrequited. Wait, that doesn't actually work. I was gonna say, well, I'll just say it, and then if it doesn't work for real, then we'll cut it. <laughs> That it, it, it brings in the Crazy Cat's unrequited love as a projection onto Ignat's, as the artist's projection onto, you know, his canvas or his comic strip or something, that there's a one-sided relationship that is being thwarted by the creative process in the form of a mouse throwing bricks. But, I love that. Well, that's nice, but then when I think about it, that... It doesn't, the he's don't agree in that way, I guess. By saying that he is at one time the author that stands in for Crazy Cat, really the Crazy Cat is not the he, if that makes sense.
0: No, but but I think it does work because I read an interview with her talking about her inspiration for doing this. And it was that she and a friend took a trip out West after she had like just ended a relationship and so she happened to be thinking about her own various failures in love. They went out and visited this place that happened to have book of books of crazy cat cartoons. And she started reading that while in the West and thinking about unrequited love and all these sort of issues. So I think in a way, it's also a little bit her voice as writing this, because that's what inspired her. She started reading about the West and about, you know, more about the history of Crazy Cat and all this sort of mixed together for her as the inspiration for this piece. I think it also works that she's in there a little bit too, as the author, thinking about what is it like to have the bricks thrown at you or to sort of be looking for a new love experience when past ones haven't worked and why haven't they worked and what are the contours of this weird relationship in the comic strip.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And people have said in reviews that I've read of the book as a whole that they were sort of expecting, because it's kind of a project theme based on something that was like popular culture ish, that it would be sort of ironically or campy, or but that they were surprised and refreshed by how actually sincere and poignant many of the pieces are, that it actually takes seriously the the love, basically, that Crazy Cat has for Ignatz. That poignancy makes sense if we're also thinking about Monica Yoon's own voice entering in.
0: And as I alluded to at the beginning, from a literary standpoint, the way that she in this poem goes about it is also taking it very seriously because, you know, in Leo Marx's study of literature from the 19th century, part of what he's interested in is distinguishing High literature from like popular and other literature and what he says about what distinguishes like Hawthorne and Melville and these sort of top tier folks is that they are really effectively putting together ideas of industry and mechanization with ideas of the pastoral and that's exactly what she's doing here.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, and so then thinking about the he as perhaps the the comic book artist and with along that, and then maybe the speaker has an element of the Monica Yoon personal, the other way of thinking about he as Ignatz the mouse, which then makes the speaker sort of crazy cat. And that, anyway, brings up, I don't know if it's a good time to have a sidebar, but the persona poem is a type of poem that is often used where the speaker adopts, you know, the voice of, you know, someone else, whether uh, someone from myth, like Persephone or something, or someone like Crazy Cat. It's like a double-sided coin. This is just my own opinion about it. Is because poems are so voice-driven. When you adopt a persona that you're then using in the first person, it's so compelling as the first person. It's like hard to then make the leap to be like, "Oh, this is a persona." Whereas, you know, if you're reading a prose fiction piece like a novel, and it's like Johnny said, da da da. da well, you know, it's not John. Like the author's not saying that. So there's the distance. Uh, Or, you know, obviously when you see a movie and you see a physical actor saying something, you know, that's not the screenplay writer's, you know, own opinion. But when you see a poem and it's just like, I am blah, 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 or I hate da, 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 it's, it's, that's all you have is the voice. And so on the one hand, the persona is very convincing, but sometimes I think it can be a little too convincing. One example of this, which we had to read for a class, is this. I mean, it's, I'm going to dish, but it's called Alamo Theory by Josh Bell, who's a seems are to be. we about to put a...
0: Josh Bell on blast.
1: Yeah. All right. There's Hi, Josh Bell. Josh Bell. It's about to go down. I'm not about your stuff. All right. He has these series of persona poems that are from the perspective of the main the lead in motley crew vince neal vince neal and basically he is vince neal of motley crew in the poem and in real life is like this horrible uber misogynist dude Ooh. who like sucks and the poems sort of adopt the posture it, I think the generous reading of it is it's this er, ironic reenacting of white male misogynist racist attitudes as a way of exposing it or something. But it's just bad. It, it and then, sounds
0: unconvincing.
1: It's unconvincing. And then like he also is just like waxing philosophic on like Keats and shit. And it's just like, well, how... It's like you're putting so much time into this Vince. Anyway, it's like, really, I think Josh Bell is just a little creepy, and he wanted to get away with being creepy. So he, so he pretended voice. that
0: the lead singer of Motley Crue was being creepy for him. Exactly. There you go.
1: So, but anyway, another striking example, which I really love the book, but the persona part of it was very strange. Although I think it, it, the point is... um Louise Glick's uh, Wild Iris, which is the book she won the poster for, that has alternating personas where some are from the perspective of this woman who's gardening, and some are from the perspective of the the flowers and plants in the garden itself, and then some are from the perspective of some sort of like deity figure. You read the poem by poem, and it's just this I over and over again, and so the the um, transition from persona to persona isn't an easy transition to make, which I think has a an effective way of bringing all of those eyes close together. Perhaps in this case, it seems like it works. Uh, I haven't read the whole book, but they're all from Crazy Cat's perspective, so it's a very consistent persona that's like iterated a bunch of times throughout. You know, it's a really interesting technique. For a poet to use sort of the tools of poetry, the sounds and the rhythms and the the high octane lyricism, while not having to always stay confined to, you know, my personal self, because that's sort of a problem that poets
0: have. Another excellent example of someone who does really good persona work is one of my personal favorites, Bruce Springsteen. (laughs) For example... (laughs) In The River, he's writing loosely from the perspective of his brother-in-law. And in his Oscar-winning song for the film Philadelphia, Streets of Philadelphia, he's writing from the perspective of someone with uh, AIDS or someone who knows someone with AIDS. I don't know that song as well, but he's writing from a clear perspective that is not Bruce Springsteen. And he does that in a lot of his songs, not always calling out I. The River sort of stands out as a song where he says right at the beginning, I Come From Down the Valley where Mr. When You're Young. It's usually that he's writing in a voice that is not his own, but not necessarily saying I all the time. There's a number of songs where he does, but my point is top-notch persona work from Mr. Bruce Springsteen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. I love that. Yeah, so sidebar
0: concluded. That was a great sidebar. Sidebar more often. That's sort of like uh, speaking of having uh, Monica Yoon, who's a lawyer, sidebar is like a little bit of a lawyer thing, you know? Like, judge, I would request a sidebar, (laughs) please.
1: That's true. Thankfully, there's no judges on this podcast, so I could just sidebar whenever I want to. But back to the poem thinking about Crazy Cat and Ignatz as the he at the end, we've sort of touched on this, but to bring it home more, imagining Crazy Cat as the speaker. In this setting, he's like observing things. And then it's interesting because it's like, here is the door that turn. Here's the door he will paint on the rock. Here is the glass floor of the cliff. they will enter from the west, backlit in orange ice and glass pyrite pendants glinting from the fringes of his voice. Okay, so what's interesting is there's this inevitability, which obviously echoes the inevitable sort of brick that the mouse throws at him. But this speaker knows maybe more than Crazy Cat himself knows about the, although interestingly, Crazy Cat, sometimes a he, sometimes a she, apparently gender fluid. Here is the door he will paint on the rock. This is an image. So we've had images of false, you know, fake imitation things. But notably, this image is ersatz. It's an ersatz door, but it's a door leading to a rock. So there's that entrance that's denied by the painting and
0: imagine it like in the comic all of a sudden as crazy cat is walking past a rock a door just opens out of it because you can do that in a comic strip and then he gets a brick chucked at him you know
1: yeah (laughs) that's funny i like that yeah and then glass floor of the cliff there's the kind of like i guess i'm imagining walking out onto glass and below you the there's just nothing is that is that how you see it? or uh, see not, it?
0: No, I actually, it reminded me of Wile E. Coyote cartoons where he runs off the cliff and doesn't fall until he notices that he's done so. Uh, so there's that period of time where you just keep going and then he sort of looks around and is like, oh no, zoinks! And then yeah. he falls like, ah, turds, I've yeah. done it again.
1: Double uh, drat.
0: And it felt like a call out to another, you know, Western set cartoon that, plays around with a lot of these same creatures doing harm to each other.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. Ideas. It's yeah. What bad influence that was. No. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's totally right. And they're still like the, the connotations are, you think you have a floor in the same way you think you might have a door and then you just fall. And so it's another inevitable lack of security after you've already committed and then there's the end is just the sound of it is so intense and cool like the eyes and the s's and the n's are lit he'll enter from the west backlit in orange icing glass pyrite pendants glinting from the fringes of his voice oh my god i have to Um, say the
0: not just the sounds but the imagery that comes in there takes a shift mm -hmm. and it becomes more explicitly just natural world icing glasses from fish pyrite is an element and similarly when you get pendants and fringes together immediately that brings up to me traditional visions of native american dress And again, there's when you're talking about the American West, and particularly a somewhat mythologized vision of the West. And I don't know, I haven't read enough Crazy Cat recently to remember how much anything like that shows up in it. But there is the idea of Native Americans being more tied into the natural world or the West that was there before the intrusion of the machine in the garden.
1: So according to that reading, Ignatz is sort of donning a stereotypical Native American garb as a natural seduction, or no?
0: I don't know that I would say that. I just think that there's a noticeable shift in the language towards yeah. natural imagery.
1: Yeah. Uh, that I don't sense. know
0: that Ignatz is necessarily wearing it, but yeah. there is certainly a seductive quality to nature. Yeah. And to have pyrite pendants on the fringes of his voice is, I think, just indicating that the voice is not to be trusted, that it's selling you a lie and that it's in some ways selling you the fool's gold of love in the form of a brick to the head.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just so sad.
0: That section more than any other, as I said earlier, there's flashes of the sort of Cormac McCarthy-esque. And I don't know if she that was part of what she was reading at the time. But that section in particular, the archaic language, the natural world language is very similar to the kind of stuff that he uses, particularly in his Western set books like Blood Meridian or All the Pretty Horses.
1: Yeah, and I think your reading of The Deception is totally spot on. And I, I like how the it goes... The language also goes into a more figurative, so not just sort of an absurd, you know, metaphorical joinage, but an uh, actual figurative, like from the fringes of his voice. Voice is something that doesn't exactly have a fringe per se. And pen- even if it did have a fringe, you couldn't like dangle a pendant near it or on it or something. And so the voice takes on a very physical quality that is is a just a beautiful way to end on so should we um should we read it again i think we should read it again i think we gotta read it again all right this is ersatz ignatz by monica Yoon. the clockwork saguaros sprout extra faces like planaria stroked by a razor chug say the sparrows emitting fluffs of steam chug chug say the piston powered ground squirrels the tumbleweeds circle on retrofitted tracks but the blue pasteboard welkin is much dented by little winds the yuccas pulse softly under the grow light sconces here is the door he will paint on the rock here is the glass floor of the cliff he'll enter from the west backlit in orange icing glass, pyrite pendants glinting from the fringes of his voice. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this, please rate us on iTunes. You can keep up with our news and other poetry and book-related news on Facebook.com slash close Talking or Twitter at Close Talking. You can keep up with me at HotSauceBox or and Jack at Jack Rossiter munn If you have another reading of one of the poems we've discussed, or think we got something totally wrong, please let us know and shoot us an email at Close Talking Poetry at Gmail.com.